0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. You may be seated. So, as I said before, today's a special Sunday. Uh, However, not only because we've been in this building for five years, but because we have uh, two wonderful guests this morning. We have Ralph Hawkins here from, he's a priest and the rector, uh, the priest in charge of our Danville church plant. And uh, Kathy, correct? Uh, If you would, if you would both stand real quick. This is Ralph and Kathy from Danville. Thank you. So my first time at Redeemer was October, 2020. I was visiting to see if this would be the place where I would land uh, after my wife and I moved here from Germany. And I actually, one of the first people I met was Ralph Hawkins uh, in the parking lot out here um, in the midst of COVID. And uh, so we're just really glad you're here and we're glad you're planting a church in Danville and that we as a church have been able to support that. So please come give us the sermon.
1: Thank you, Jared. It's an honor to be here with you all this morning and a real pleasure. Uh, you've already met my wife, Kathy. We um, live in Danville, as Jared said, and we've been there for 10 years. Um, I have not uh, the, the Danville church plant is actually a service of COTR. So uh, that's an extension of COTR, but I've actually only worshiped here with you uh, like two or three times When uh, up until right before I came into the ACNA. I was a United Methodist pastor and had been a pastor in that tradition for 20 years and uh, uh, so my wife was attending here with the kids and I was still pastoring United Methodist Congregations but anyway uh, we made the switch and uh, are, are grateful to be a part of this wonderful tradition of the Anglican Church in North America Um, And glad to be with you, and I see that it's only 9.15, so golly, I can preach for an hour, uh, right? Or an hour and a half. (laughs) Somebody forgot to change it, but there's another clock, it says 10.19, but uh, anyway, so so good to be with you. Well, um, I'm going to share with you out of the Genesis 18 passage that... uh, McIntyre, I don't know where he went, but uh, McIntyre did such a fine job of reading. And um, before we get into that text, I'll just uh, uh, push in and kind of talk about the broader theme for just a minute. Um, In ancient Israel, God's people were surrounded by idolatry. Uh, Pagan gods were carved from wood or stone. But they were powerless to act in the lives of those who worshiped them. And faced with the powerful attraction of other gods throughout their history, ancient Israel fought back by boldly proclaiming God's incomparability. And one of the earliest expressions of this theme is in the Song of Miriam which Moses' sister sang after the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, There's not uh, much recorded of her song. Uh, What has survived appears in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. But listen to what she says. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? You see, she's talking about the Lord's incomparability. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? awesome in splendor, doing wonders." Now the word that the New Revised Standard Version translates wonders there has also been translated as too hard, extraordinary, difficult, or even impossible. And throughout the sermon as I talk about this, I'm gonna translate that word as impossible because I really think it captures the force that the writers of Scripture intend. So listen to Exodus 15 11, again with that change. Miriam says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing impossibilities? this idea that ancient israel's god was a living god in contrast to the gods carved from wood or stone and could do impossible things this became one of the great themes of the old testament that this god could do the impossible but the encounter, the ancient Israelites encounter with this God of the impossible began with this strange encounter in Genesis 18 that McIntyre read to us a moment ago, Genesis 18 verses 1 through 15. And you, you may remember the story of Abraham and Sarah up to the point where McIntyre read way back in Genesis 12, that's where Abraham and Sarah's story begins. The Lord called Abram, at that time it was known as Abram, but I'm just going to call him Abraham throughout. The Lord called Abraham and made a covenant with him, promising to make a great nation out of him. And Abraham responded in faith, again, as you know, and left his extended family and his home back in the Mesopotamian city of Haran and migrated across the Fertile Crescent to the land of Canaan. Uh, so what do you need though to build a great nation? What was the first thing Abraham and Sarah needed? A, a, a child. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're not going to get very far building a great nation unless you've got at least one child. You know, you've you got to get started that way. So they migrated across the Fertile Crescent, landed in the, the land of Canaan, but the years just passed, one after the other, with no children. And Sarah never had a child. Uh, Abraham began to wonder about that. He wondered how in the world is God gonna bring these promises to pass when we don't have any children? And eventually he wondered if maybe this old servant in his household, a man named Eliezer, maybe that guy might be the heir. Uh, and he told God that in Genesis 15 too. But the Lord said no. Genesis 15, 4, it will be your own son. (laughs) Well, more time passed. And although Sarah's handmaid bore a son named Ishmael, Sarah remained childless. Well, more years passed. (laughs) And you know the story. Abraham eventually turned 99. And the Lord reaffirmed his promise. This is in Genesis 17, verse 1. And this time, when he reaffirmed the promise, he promised that Sarah would not only have a child, but that this child would give rise to nations (laughs) and that kings of peoples would come from her. Now, look at what happens. We didn't read this text, but uh, this is uh, Genesis chapter 17, verse 17. It says that Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Fell on his face. We always the passage McIntyre read to his Sarah chuckled in the tent and everybody criticizes Sarah for that. But this is Abraham, he didn't just laugh, he didn't snicker, he didn't chortle, he literally collapsed on the ground in side splitting laughter because he believed this promise was just so ridiculous. He just couldn't believe it any longer, <laughs> right? And it was, he just collapsed on the ground in side-splitting laughter. He fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, can a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Can Sarah, who's 99 years old, or who's 90 years old, bear a child? But God said, no. Your wife, Sarah, shall bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac. All right, this is a great line of scripture. And you don't really see it in English, but in Hebrew, the name Isaac, my throat's a little dry. It's Yitzchak, Yitzchak. All right, anybody want to guess what the name Isaac means, Yitzchak? Did somebody say it? Okay, yeah. Yeah, it literally means laughter. So Abraham has fallen on his face laughing and God says, I'll show you laughter. You're going to have this son and I want you to name him laughter because the laugh, the joke's going to be on you. <laughs> right? Well, Abraham laughed at the impossibility of the promise. And so God told him to literally name the child laughter because he would change Abraham's laughter of disbelief and derision into the laughter of wonder. And the next episode, of course, is from today's Old Testament reading, Genesis 18. And the Lord in the form of three men appeared to Abraham and Sarah by the oaks of Mamre. As MacIntyre read to us, Abraham hurriedly welcomed those strangers outside the tent. He washed their feet, he prepared a meal for them, and he stood beside them under the tree while they ate. And then they started asking Abraham questions. They asked, well, where's Sarah? And Abraham answered, well, she's in the tent. And then all of a sudden in verse 10, the text specifies it was the Lord speaking. This is a great mystery. Uh, the three visitors and uh, somehow they represent the Lord, but the Lord speaks and he reaffirmed the promise again. He said, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. Now Sarah was back inside the tent. She overheard these words and the text says she was 90 years old. And so she laughed to herself at such a ridiculous idea. The Lord heard her silent laughter, and he challenged it with a quick rebuke. He asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a son, now that I'm old? And this is the Lord speaking. Is anything too impossible for the Lord? Verse 14. Well, in the second half of the verse, the Lord reaffirmed the promise again. And then Sarah again denied that she laughed. But the Lord said, oh, yes, you did laugh. That's verse 15. <laughs> well, in the wake of these unbelievable promises, Abraham and Sarah were simply left with what seemed like a ridiculous question. And that ridiculous question was, the, the Lord asked it himself, is anything impossible for the Lord? The Lord answered that question, of course, when he dealt with Sarah, just as he said he would, and she conceived and bore a son. And Abraham, as you know, named him uh, Isaac, as Genesis 21, 3 says, which we've already talked about. It means laughter. And Sarah makes this crowning statement in Genesis 21, verse 6. She says, God has brought laughter for me. And now everyone who hears this story will laugh with me. It's such a beautiful story because it's a story about how the God of the impossible turns the laughter of disbelief and derision into the laughter of joy and celebration. And so this story in Genesis 18, is the initial story that sets forth this theme that's going to appear throughout the rest of the Old Testament. That the God of ancient Israel is different from the gods carved from stone and wood that the pagans worship. This is a living God who literally does the impossible, <laughs> brings creation into existence, right? And this idea that the God of the Old Testament was a God of impossibilities became a recurrent theme throughout the rest of the Old Testament. I've already mentioned the Song of Miriam, where she celebrated the Exodus by proclaiming that the Lord was a God majestic in holiness, terrible in glorious deeds, and doing impossibilities. That's Exodus fifteen eleven. But Israel's later songs went on to praise God in this very same way, exalting God as a God of the impossible. Here's a song from the Psalter, Psalm 40, verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your impossible deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. Were I to proclaim and Tell others about these impossible deeds, they would be far more than can be counted. That's Psalm 40, verse 5. And another psalm proclaims I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your impossibilities from of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is so great as our God who can do the impossible? It's a rhetorical question. No one is, right? Well, sadly, time and again, Israel forgot that the Lord God does impossibilities. And the psalmist also laments this forgetfulness on Israel's part. In Psalm 78, The psalmist says this, he says, They forgot what he had done and the impossibilities that he had shown them. In spite of all this, they sinned. Despite his impossibilities, they did not believe. That's really something that you can see and experience impossibilities and yet cease believing or fail to believe. But that's another sermon. In any case, they forgot the impossibilities. And so the Lord had to come and show them that he was still the God of the impossibilities. The impossibilities of God, that's not just an Old Testament theme, but if you just flip over after the end of Malachi and go right into the New Testament, God comes back to the Israelites to remind them, to reaffirm to them that he was still the God of the impossibilities and that he had more impossibilities to show them. He had a new thing he was going to do. A new impossible thing, right? When the angel Gabriel appeared to the Blessed Mother, she asked, well, how are you going to send the Messiah through me? Because I'm still a virgin. And the angel explained, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And how can this be? Luke one thirty-seven. the angel says, because nothing will be impossible for God. The God of impossibilities from the Old Testament is still the God of impossibilities in the New Testament. And he's got new impossibilities. He's going to work. All through the New Testament, this is a theme. When the disciples were shocked that the rich young ruler couldn't be saved, Jesus said, you know, all things are possible through God. That man may walk away now, but he can indeed be saved despite his hard-heartedness, you know. On another occasion Jesus said in Mark 11:24, Therefore I tell you whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Because the God to whom you pray is the God of impossibilities. And another time Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if you've got faith as small as that of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move. Because nothing will be impossible for you. Matthew 17, 20. The Apostle Paul taught this idea repeatedly, such as when he wrote in Romans 8:31, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? If the God of impossibilities is on our side, the enemy can't prevail. Toward the end of his career, Paul wrote a letter from a prison, he wrote a series of letters from prison. One of these was the letter uh, to the Philippians. And in that letter, he said, you know, I'm not writing to you uh, out of a position of need because I've learned to be content in every circumstance. Um, And the fact is that through the God of impossibilities, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, right? well ancient israel's grave danger and ours lies in forgetting the impossibilities that god performed in the past it means shrinking god down so that he's predictable so that we can explain everything he does it means putting god in a box a famous new testament theologian many years ago wrote uh, a very small book called your god is too small (laughs) And there's a tendency among uh, Christians of all sorts to forget forget uh, that God is capable of impossibilities and to shrink God down and put him in a box, but that's another sermon as well. Uh, But the fact is, what I've tried to tell you this morning is simply that God is still the God of the impossible. Uh, That's not just an Old Testament theme, it's a New Testament theme. It's not just a Jesus-era theme, but it's an early church theme. Right. It appears throughout the epistles, throughout the writings of Paul and his co-authors. They all all the authors of scriptures speak with a unified voice to tell us that through God, through Jesus Christ, all things are possible there, uh, It's possible for you and I to be saved. It's possible for us to prevail in prayer. It's possible for us to overcome addiction. It's possible for us to share our faith with others. It's possible to experience grace in the midst of sickness and disease. It's possible, it's possible. We worship a God of impossibilities. Today and this week, may you seek the God of the impossible. He's there for you to empower you in new ways. Amen.